Thanks for listening to Marketing B2B Tech, the podcast from Napier where you can find out what really works in B2B marketing today. Welcome to Marketing B2B Technology, the podcast from Napier. Today, I'm joined by Joe Zappa. Joe is the founder and CEO of Sharp Pen Media. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to have you. And you're a little bit different because you're actually running an agency, but you're running an agency that works with a very specific group of um, clients. So you've really specialized in the marketing technology, which is why you're on. I'm really excited to find out and take a little bit of a look behind the scenes as to you know how some of the guests who've been on our podcast might actually be doing marketing. So hopefully you can help us with that. Yeah, I'll do my best. Okay, so first thing, you know, we have to start out and find out how you got to where you are today. You started as a journalist, and now you're um, helping um, marketing technology companies promote themselves. I, I mean, how do you make that jump? That sounds like quite an exciting career journey. Yeah, so I was an ad tech, martech journalist. I was the editor for five years of the martech trade publication Street Fight. And when I was doing that, I would edit the thought leadership byline submissions we would get. So basically, I was constantly interfacing with the marketers who were representing ad tech and martech companies, either fielding their pitches, reading their press releases, or editing their executive byline submissions. And when I started to transition from being a journalist to being a marketer, the way I did it was just to talk to all the people who had been pitching me forever and be like, hey, what do you do? Tell me about that. And then they would be like, you know the space really well. You've edited these things. Why don't you try writing them? And I did. And it went well because I had an understanding having edited like a thousand columns by ad tech and martech CEOs, uh, what works and what doesn't and what's actually compelling to the audience. So it's really interesting. But what made you make that jump and go from being a journalist through to, to actually, you know, effectively starting your own agency? Yeah, I was recommended to a company that needed a content marketing writer and realized that I really liked it. I got my start in journalism editing the daily newspaper at my college. And there I would do reporting and edit the reporting of others. And I would also edit the columns and work with the column writers. And I always really appreciated argumentative writing, sort of like a debate club. Like I really love getting into the head of a given company or company leader and figuring out like, okay, I know about these trends in our space. What is this company's position within the space? How do we differentiate them and make that argument? So that was something I loved about marketing from the jump. Oh, that sounds really cool. So, I, I mean, you got your first, you know, if you like freelance gig. How do you then grow the agency? I mean, what, what were the next steps to go from, from that one sort of freelance role into building up to, to be an agency that, that obviously now is, is quite a big force in the MarTech space? Yeah, interestingly, I think the journey for an early stage agency or a freelancer trying to become an agency owner in marketing is not so dissimilar from that of a really early stage tech company, which is to say that I wouldn't have recognized it as this at the time, but it's basically founder-led sales in the beginning, right? You're setting up your shingle, you come up with a basic positioning statement, and you are working your network and talking to everyone you know and see like who will work with you. Once I had that sort of critical mass of clients, I made a pretty classic like freelancer to agency owner transition when I just couldn't do all the work myself, right? Like I went from one or two clients to six to eight, 
And by then it was like, okay, well, I'm writing like three articles a day on top of trying to market the business and manage things like that's not going to happen. So that's when I had to hire people and start really running an agency. I, I mean, that's awesome that you managed to, to grow it like that. So where are you today? I mean, you know, how far have you gone and what does Sharp Pen Media do for your clients today? Yeah, so we have about a dozen clients in ad tech and martech, ranging from really early stage startups to billion dollar plus revenue companies. We do marketing strategy, content, and PR for our clients. I basically view it as two different personas. One is a probably fairly early stage company. I mean, they might have been around for 20 years, but they're still small-ish in that they don't really have a marketing team or a marketing strategy. So for those clients, we'll come in and we'll bring in a multi-time ad tech, martech CMO, and we'll create your marketing strategy, obviously, with you, with the CEO or the CRO, whoever's uh, in the picture. And then the other client, which is probably more relevant to your audience, is a more mid-market or enterprise company that has a marketing team and a strategy already. And with them, we're usually working with the you know director of comms or VP of content or whatever it is. And there, I view our role more as making their life easier. So generally, they work with us because they have worked with freelancers or agencies before who didn't really get ad tech, martech, and they want to come in and like not have to explain like what's a DSP, what's like B2B intent data, what is a third-party cookie, these kinds of things. We just come in and we know that and we try to make their lives easier. And hopefully everyone listening knows what all those abbreviations are because they've heard other people talk about them. So, so that's great. I, I'm interested, you've got those two very different personas where, you know, it sounds like the startup, you basically are the marketing department, whereas um, the more established companies, you know, you're working for a marketing team. Do these two very different companies or types of companies, do they face the same challenges or are they facing very different problems? I think on one level, there is a similar challenge, which is sort of my hobby horse, which is that like a huge challenge in ad tech and martech and more broadly B2B tech marketing is differentiation or transcending commoditization, right? So even when you have these more established companies that have a certain level of awareness and product market fit, I think still there's often a challenge of, okay, you know, we help companies sort out their data, right? First party, third party data, whatever it is. And privacy is a huge issue in that space. So we want to write a byline about, or we want to write an executive byline for our CEO about the, the third party cookie going away. So this is very common, right? And this is what I experienced as an editor was I edited hundreds of these third-party cookies going away, what do we do now columns. And I still see that even with very mature companies is that you have to work together to figure out, okay, let's reset. Like we're, we might have a marketing team of 10 or 50 people. We're pretty advanced, but do we really have a differentiated message? And do we have a way to talk about the news that relates to that differentiated message? So that I would say is the similarity. I would say the difference is that those early stage companies, they need that marketing strategy, right? They probably don't have written down anywhere like, this is who we are. This is who our competitors are. This is why we're different. This resonates with our customers. So especially for the younger companies, I think you need to do that foundational work of understanding who the customers are and what resonates with them. Wow. So that, that sounds like two very different challenges. I mean, it sounds like those startup companies, you really are starting from scratch. Even if they've been around for a while, if they're small, they don't have that the plan, the strategy, the frameworks to do it. The, the enterprise comes in. Why do you think they're, they're still you know, writing these same articles? And I might agree, the third-party cookie going away is that storyline that keeps giving, right? We don't seem to get rid of it. 
why do they keep going back to to those same storylines rather than finding something new? I think it's because things evolve in your industry. And there was probably a point if you're a mature company where you did the exact type of exercise we're talking about with the early stage companies, right? Somewhere along the line, you got together with your executive team and the leaders of the marketing department. You talked about who you are and how you're going to be different. You interviewed a handful of customers, figured out what resonates with them, all of that foundational work. But that goes stale, right? Like you need to do that basically once a year to understand how to insert yourself into the narrative of the industry and provide value to your audience. When you don't do that sort of strategic work on some sort of regular basis, you end up taking the easy way out, which is no individual's fault. It's just what happens when like everyone is busy and you don't have the time to set aside for that strategic reflection. And so then you end up pumping out commoditized insights, right? Where it's like in ad tech and martech, we've all read, you know, 50 bylines on how to prepare for the death of a third party cookie. And then we end up saying basically the same thing. So I think it's it's keeping up with the dynamism of the industry. That is the challenge. But what would you say? Because you work with a lot of companies on similar issues. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. We see a lot of themes that are fairly consistent. So if you look at the world of I don't know, industrial automation, there, there's a huge theme around net zero. I mean, it's, it's, it's a massive um, topic. But I think in a way, companies in, in my, our space are actually quite good at putting their own, you know, really specific view on it. Because the way you get to net zero in terms of saving as much carbon and, uh, you know, sequestering it or, or, or doing whatever, as opposed to the carbon you're emitting, there are different ways to do that. So you can do that and, and have a strategy around capturing that carbon. You can have a strategy around generating energy in a more environmentally friendly way. You can have a strategy around more efficiency. I, I think we see those big topics, but there's lots of different ways to attack them. I think one of the challenges maybe you face is that, you know, with something like a third party cookie, that there's going to be one industry solution um, that's going to be consistent. And people can't very easily come up with very different answers. Is, is that fair, do you think? Yeah, or there are two or three solutions. Yeah. But ultimately, if you have 100 companies talking about two or three solutions, you're still going to end up with that commoditization challenge. Yeah, absolutely. So Becoming commoditized and, and, and not differentiating. I mean, that, that's a, a classic um, mistake that people make. I mean, do you see other mistakes being made in the uh, marketing technology space where, where companies are maybe missing opportunities or perhaps just simply doing things wrong? Yeah, one is consistency. So I think that, you know, we mainly do content and PR for our clients. And something that we see a lot is that companies are stuck on the MQL hamster wheel. So they're stuck only doing marketing tactics that can be easily attributed to leads. And that's fine. Like in the beginning, you should do that, right? Like if you're an early stage company and you need leads to survive uh, and you don't have a reliable acquisition channel, you should focus on marketing tactics that will clearly grow your business. But as you mature, and let's say you're an eight-figure revenue company, and you get all of your leads from SEO. That might be an acceptable tactic to management because it's easy to understand, right? Like we spend this much, we write these articles, we can easily track them. People come through, they submit a demo request. But ultimately, to grow beyond whatever stage you're at, you're going to plateau with that MQL-focused SEO tactic, and you're going to need other tactics. And that's where understanding that 
being a part of the industry conversation and regularly getting in front of your audience does pay dividends over the long term is important. If you can find like a version of Twitter, right? Like people will say in industry Twitter, it's like ad tech Twitter or whatever it is. If every major thread that happens in that industry you are a part of and people are looking to you as an authority, or if you're speaking at conferences and people recognize you as a luminary on this or that issue, like that is going to generate gains for your business over the long term. And I think where a lot of companies go wrong is they just give up on it too soon. They don't want to do anything that can be easily measured in terms of lead output. So they have their main lead strategy, but then they like try out content, they give up on it because after three months, they're like, this isn't clearly generating leads. The other thing I would say is that companies focus too much on their own product, which is harder for their prospects to remember than they might imagine. Like my new product details are very important to the people working every day on the product. They're not as important to the customer base. And the key is to make your customer the hero of the story, not your product. So I would say those are two things I see often. That's amazingly similar with what, you know, we see in our industries as well. And I think, you know, the, the product is really interesting and I, I, I totally get it. I mean, I used to be an engineer, I used to be developing products, you know, and products were two years of your life and you put this huge effort in and it really matters to you. And it's very hard to have a marketer go and say, customers aren't that worried about particular features or particular products. What, what they care about is overall, whether you're the right vendor with the right sort of range of capabilities to be able to work with them. That's hard when you've spent all that effort and all that time on, on one particular product or one particular feature. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Ultimately, you are selling to a person. And unfortunately, that person, like, let's say your product is, you know, five hours out of their week, they just don't have that same level of attachment to the intricacies of the product as you do. So the way I try to coach people out of that is to focus on the person or the persona, right? Like, who is this person who's using the product? What do they want to achieve? And how are you going to help them? I'm sure you do something similar. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it, I guess it's a fairly standard approach, but it, it's very effective. I'm, I'm interested to, you know, move away from some of the challenges. Let's look at something a bit more positive. I mean, where do you see MarTech companies getting it right? Are there any particular campaigns you've, you've run or seen that, that you think really crush it in the world of MarTech? Yeah, one example I like to go to is our marketing strategist, Paul Connecton. He was the chief marketing officer of an ad tech company called Beeswax that had a nine-figure exit to Comcast. And what Paul realized when he was working at Beeswax was they were working with media buyers, so brands and agencies, and they were having trouble with sales cycles. You know, sales cycles were really long. They couldn't really figure out who is truly our ideal customer and how do we use that intelligence to bring in the right people, make the sales cycle shorter, and then make happier customers. And what they ultimately realized was that they had this sort of intricate and granular tech that really resonated with a persona that they ended up calling control freaks, which is yeah. funny because... It almost sounds insulting, right? But that's the exact idea of it was that they didn't resonate with like the average media buyer. They resonated with companies that had built out data teams and people who really wanted to get into the weeds on their media buying technology. And by reworking their marketing and their sales pitch around this persona of the control freak, they were able to bring in the right people, shorten the sales cycle and have happier customers because they were no longer foisting this like relatively granular tech 
on people who just wanted something easy. Right. So I think that's a great example because it shows what we sort of learn in marketing 101, but then tend to forget because it's hard, which is that the most effective positioning will actually turn away the majority of the people who see it, but it will really resonate with the 20% of your potential market you need to be super successful. Yeah. And I love that as well, because I think in B2B, it's so easy to, to almost think of personas in terms of checkbox characteristics, you know, size of firm, what role they are, you know, how many people in their team. And actually, I think that, that control freaks is really interesting because that, that's much more about that person's behavior and how they think and, and, and really not so much about what they actually do. And, and I totally agree. I think that can be really, really effective when you really get under the skin of your customer. Yeah, I agree. I was talking to another startup founder recently who runs a text messaging solution that helps small businesses communicate more easily with site visitors, right? To turn online visitors into leads. And he was saying like, there's a hard condition for our prospects, which is they need to have website traffic, right? Because then if not, that solution obviously won't work. But then there's a softer, more like persona driven condition, which is they have to care about communication and they have to want to improve and sort of have this understanding that there would be value in a solution that would help them more effectively communicate with their customers. And that's not like you could have a 10 person business where they have that desire and you could have a hundred person business where they're like, oh no, this is never going to work. It's not important. So you're right. It does go beyond firmographics. That's great. I mean, I, I could talk about personas for ages. I love, I love personas, but I, I'm aware of the time. I think we ought to talk about some of the other topics. I mean, one of the topics I feel I can almost never do a podcast w without is mentioning AI at the moment. You know, I, I'm interested to know as another agency owner, where are you using AI and, and where do you see it going? So where we think AI can be helpful is in research and inspiration. So for example, uh, if you are writing about location data and you have a freelance writer who's never written about it, a use case where I've found uh, AI helpful is having that writer put into ChatGPT, like write a blog post about three ways enterprises can use location data to grow internationally, right? And then that might provide them a basic education on the subject that's going to be more efficient than if they were to go out and like Google seven different things and like read a bunch of different articles. Or another way would be a very commonly established use case now, like give me 10 subject lines for an email about X, Y, or Z. But overall, to be honest, I think the generative AI phenomenon has been overblown. And the reason I think that is because AI is ultimately at present more of a tactical tool. It's not going to solve like foundational strategic or critical thinking marketing questions. And I'm just of the opinion that those foundational questions like, who are we? Whom are we speaking to? What's going to resonate with them? I think that comes from speaking to your customers, speaking to industry experts and thinking critically. I don't think it can really come from ChatGPT. And I think the obsession with generative AI comes from a problem in marketing, which is that we are very obsessed with like tools and tactics and efficiency. And I think often to the detriment of those strategic developments that really make marketing successful. But what about you? How are you using it and how do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, generative AI is really interesting because it's very attractive because writing good quality content is really hard. And most people know that. A lot of people who are not specialist writers, they really don't want to have to create that content. So 
that promise of generative AI to be able to create blog posts very quickly is incredibly seductive. And I understand why people like it. I mean, we've actually tried, we ran a test using Jasper, which is still based on the same GPT model. And we did some editing to make it better, but effectively we ran the test. We decided we weren't prepared to post the blogs because uh, they weren't good enough. So we did some editing afterwards and we put them up. And ironically, at about the same time, we obviously had some of our writers writing content, but also we were doing a couple of articles on design and we had a couple of designers contributing. And the designers, you know, blogs don't do as well as the ones written by professional writers. And, and they probably shouldn't do, you know, I mean, it, it, it'd be worrying if designers were as good at writing as uh, people who do that as their career. So they had a much lower time on page. And interestingly, when we put the AI generated content up, it was about as good as the designers, even though we've had writers come in and try and edit it and, and, and facelift it afterwards. So, you know, kind of my view was if you want to write blog posts that are as good as a graphic designer, AI is not bad. I think it will get better, but being an ex-engineer, fundamentally what AI is trying to do in generative AI is it's trying to predict the next most likely word. And it's not quite that simple. It's a little bit more complex, but it tries to predict what word would be most likely used. And that to me says average. So I think, you know, generative AI will, will get to the point where it's round about as good as the average person at writing. And obviously we'll have specialist knowledge that not everybody will have. So, you know, in, in terms of any one specialization, it will be average. I don't see it getting above average because by its definition, it's not trying to be creative. It's not trying to be new. It's interesting how, when you look at very short form content, you know, Google ads, headlines or subject lines for emails, sometimes there, the way uh, GPT works, you can actually get some quite creative ideas. And I think for sparking ideas, it's great. Certainly for summarizing content, it's amazing as well. You know, if you want to summarize something down, or indeed, if you want to get to explain a technical concept in our, our sector, there's lots of technical concepts that are quite hard to understand. And actually, AI is better than a lot of web pages at explaining those. So all of those things are fantastically helpful, but it, it doesn't replace people yet. I mean, it's certainly not got that creativity. And, and I don't think it will. I think what will happen is rather than us having a if effectively a, a marketing co-pilot, a, you know, a chat GPT that we consult all the time, I think there'll be AI features accelerated into all sorts of different tools and almost disappear. I mean, AI will almost disappear and you won't think of it as AI, but it will just be suggesting ideas to you. It will be helping you create content. And I think that that's the future. And that, and that is very exciting. Um, but it's not a, it's not like having a, a cyborg next to you. That's a marketer. Yeah. And it's similar to how it works from a product or entrepreneurial standpoint, right? In that most of the successful companies that are using AI over the next five to 10 years, they won't be quote unquote AI companies. They will be companies that are doing similar things to what companies are doing now with AI to be better at it in X, Y, or Z way. Another thing I would just add is that what you're describing with ChatGPT or generative AI pumping out uh, average content returns us to the commoditization problem, right? That's mm -hmm. it's like you're using a tool that necessarily churns out commodity content because it's optimizing for the average and it can't capture what is specific about your company's positioning or expertise. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is sometimes something that agencies aren't very happy about talking about, but a lot of what we do doesn't actually really resonate. And actually, typically when we look at content, I'm sure you're the same, you know, a small percentage of content is responsible for the vast majority of engagement on any website or, you know, in any publication. There's a few really hot stories or topics that people really um, like. And so generating average is not a good idea because 
average content gets well below the average number of views. It's the exceptional content that really drives success. I mean, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. And I also think that speaks again to the consistency point of, right, of you show up every day, you participate in the industry conversation and, you know, one out of five pieces uh, or tweets or LinkedIn posts or whatever it is are going to have an outsized impact. But if you're just pumping out the same thing every day and optimizing for average, you're far less likely to see that outsized impact from the best pieces of content. I love that. If you're optimizing for average, you're not going to see outsized impact. That That's a quote that uh, I think we should leave with on the podcast. This has been fascinating, Joe, and I, I think it's been you know, really interesting. I could talk to you for ages. We have a couple of questions we'd like to ask everybody to to try and get some idea of what are the good things in marketing? And one of the things we like to know is, what's the best bit of marketing advice you've ever been given? I think really good advice that is given often but not followed is that if you really want to market a company effectively, especially as an agency where you're not immersed in that product every day, you have to talk to customers. So as I said, we do that with early stage companies for sure, if we're setting the foundational marketing strategy. But I would just exhort your listeners to, of course, be sure they're communicating with customers, but also if they have agencies or freelancers, to let them either talk directly to customers or at the very least, like get transcripts or sit in on customer calls, because it's from talking to customers and hearing what they love about the product and how it makes them do their jobs better that you're really going to understand how to reflect the best parts of the product back to the target audience. That's great advice. I love that. and understand the customer. In terms of careers, I mean, you know, you were a journalist and then moved into marketing. What do you feel about marketing career? Would you advise, you know, a young person thinking about marketing to go into the career or would you say there's better places they could be? Yeah, I definitely would. I mean, I went to a sort of liberal arts college and friends of mine who went into business right out of college, they went into like consulting or finance. There was no sales or marketing classes or major. And I didn't even really know what marketing was when I was leaving college. And I wouldn't have done it differently necessarily, but I do think it would be really helpful for kids with more of a writing aptitude, with more of a qualitative brain to understand that communications and content are out there and that there are you know tens of thousands of jobs in these industries because you can participate in business and sort of have a more standard uh, secure career path without just like living in spreadsheets every day of course there's another part of marketing that is living in spreadsheets and like the the data science people or the more quantitative brain folks they have lots of options in business that include marketing and many other things but i would especially just talk to college students or early career professionals who are more writing or qualitative uh, focused and say like there are a lot of really good business jobs out there for them. That's great advice. I love it. Joe, I so appreciate your time. I'm, I'm, you know, really valuable your insights. If people are interested in contacting you and finding out a bit more, whether they're from a MarTech firm that needs help, or perhaps just somebody who wants to ask you about something you said on the podcast, what's the best way for them to contact you? Yeah, you can find me either at podcast.sharppenmedia.com or just Google Joe Zappa LinkedIn and I'm sure I'll pop up. That's fantastic. Joe, it's been a great conversation. It's great to talk um, to someone who runs another agency in a slightly different sector. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
thanks so much for listening to Marketing B2B Tech. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please make sure you subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcast application. If you'd like to know more, please visit our website at napierb2b.com or contact me directly on LinkedIn. Thank you.